I need just a minute to get myself organized up here and get a few things out. I think it would probably be appreciated by at least those who are over 40 if you had a chance just to stand up, stretch your arms, legs, a minute. No, it's not, it's not being recorded yet. This is, just stretch a minute while I... Okay, I think we're ready to begin. I'll, I promised, was it you, Amy, that I would address one question tonight since you had raised it? The question that I had on my sheet last night, which I never addressed at all, never got around to, was the question as to whether or not preachers teach and teachers preach? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> well, okay. I didn't say that was the sum total of the answer. I have spent all of my life, the majority of my life, as a teacher, either at the college level or at the secondary level, elementary level. And when I was at Trinity, over the 13 years from 79 to 92, I'll it was required there that every year in each of our courses we had to give out student evaluation forms so that students could evaluate us. And one of the criticisms that often came in on my evaluation forms was that I preached too much. You know, what do you think this is? A theology course? This is supposed to be educational philosophy. You sound like a uh, that's fine. I am happy to be accused of that. Now, since I have been a pastor and have been preaching for the last two and a half years, so many of my congregation say, we learn a lot from your sermons. You're such a good teacher. I'm supposed to be a preacher. And the question always comes up, are the two the same? I think that they're much closer together than most people realize. We live in such a secularized culture that we tend to compartmentalize and say, well, pastors are preachers, and that's one category, and over here is another category called teachers, and they function quite, quite differently. And I say, there are differences, yes, certainly. As a teacher, I can engage in dialogue with my class. And I can do like I'm doing here with you. I can simply ask questions and get you to respond and say, sorry, but you're wrong. When we talk about preaching, when we talk about proclaiming the gospel, we are acting at that point like emissaries or ambassadors of God and we are proclaiming his good news, his word, his law to his people. So there is a difference. But let me remind you that the disciples always called their master teacher. Jesus was always called teacher. And Jesus taught constantly. And he engaged in dialogue with his audience. He was always interacting with them. So Jesus, who is in a sense our best model, did an awful lot of teaching, interacting, and dialogue. So the answer is a qualified yes. If your pastor teaches you something, be thankful. Because hopefully you'll learn about the word of God as you hear that word week after week. Yes, sir. When I saw that question last night, I thought that maybe you're going to get into an issue uh, that maybe just belongs to one of uh, a different style of preaching. There are certainly, you might listen to one sermon, uh, go to a worship service, and uh, have more more of a, a style that came to you and crosses as 
like a Sunday school class versus one more like a, a sermon. Uh, and maybe it's just, and so I thought that was going to be the thing you were going to deal with there. And maybe, maybe both are, are fine and adequate and just a difference in style. I don't know, do you have any comments to that? There are different styles and there are different methods. Jesus used different methods of proclaiming or of revealing himself and his Father's will. Sometimes Jesus used parables as a way of illustrating or demonstrating what he wanted to teach. When he gets about halfway through his earthly ministry, he switches his methodology and goes to parables and deliberately uses parables because he wants to obscure the message for those who are opposed to him. He doesn't want them to get the crystal clear message that the disciples are supposed to get. So Jesus changes method depending on what he's trying to accomplish. And I think teachers do the same thing. Sometimes a teacher should engage in dialogue and interaction. Sometimes that's very inappropriate. Sometimes you have to simply proclaim, thus says the Lord. So you come with more of a sermonic model or sermonic mode. I think the question implies, though, that there is a particular kind of thing that has to happen when you preach, that there is something about a sermon that is all didactic. It's all from the top down. It's not give and take. And I think that's, that's true. I think we have to admit that. A sermon is the proclamation of God's word to his people. It's a didactic, top-down kind of model. So some of that's involved. Okay? I don't think we want to get too preoccupied with this because otherwise we're going to put these kids to sleep in the front row and that would be terrible, wouldn't it? You are my weather veins. <laughs> if you start drowsing off, I'm going to wake you up. Yes? What is the difference between teaching and preaching? Uh, in addition to what I just said, did you catch what I was trying to get at a while ago? Yeah. No. Uh, yes and no. I didn't uh, make myself clear. The question is, what is the difference between teaching and preaching now? Uh, and I would say that preaching has as its primary characteristic the fact that what it ought to be, many times it isn't, but preaching ought to be the proclamation of God's word through his spokesman, through his ambassador to the people. And it's a top-down, didactic kind of proclamation coming from God himself. I should be able to say when I preach, this is God's word. Hear it, listen to it, obey it, and believe it. Teaching is a different kind of a style. It's a give and take. Okay? All right. Let's, let's get on. Uh, if you have further questions about that matter, see me later on after this session because I want to move into the question of how should we understand kids? Children, excuse me. Kids are goats, aren't they? Yeah. And kids don't like to be called kids. I had a good friend who was a Roman Catholic who was the principal of a school right behind the house where we lived and I knew him for quite a number of years he was the principal of a public junior high school and he always and forever talked about those squirrels <laughs> that's the way he addressed that's the way he referred to the students in his school he always said those squirrels did this and those squirrels did that. And then he wondered oftentimes why the students who graduated from that junior high so often would come back the next summer and throw eggs at his building. 
and why they would throw rocks through the windows. He honestly treated kids as though they were animals. And he never showed respect for them. He never treated students, children, with dignity. But should we? We sh Yeah. <laughs> the whole front row is saying, yes, of course. <laughs> Give me a Bible passage that proves it. Ah. Is there anything in God's word that tells me that I ought to treat you children with respect? Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis. Go to Genesis 1. Start at verse 26. Good place to start. Yeah, but at the beginning. Genesis 1, chapter 26. Verse 26. Did I say something? Uh, you know what? Bob Lee beat me so bad in tennis this afternoon. I, I can't stop straight. He's good. But tomorrow is another day, Bob. Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You and I, every one of us, is made in the image of God. Wow. Should I treat children with respect and dignity? Sure ought to. Sure ought to. I shouldn't ever call them little squirrels. I shouldn't ever say, you dummy. Shouldn't ever say that, should I? Once in a while, children act that way. Once in a while, I feel that way, but I shouldn't call you that. Mm -mm. But now, that isn't the only thing the Bible says. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 21. That isn't the whole story, you know. Paul says there to us through his letter to the church at Rome, starting at verse 21, and I just want to read right down through the end of the chapter. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And then drop down to verse 28. Furthermore, 
since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. He's talking about us. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And then go on to verse 15. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Let me move over to the board and just show you what I think we need to keep in mind as we answer this question. I'm going to try to talk loud enough so you can hear me, but what you find when you go to God's Word and you start asking the question, what is the nature of man, you have to recognize that you are talking about three different states. You first of all have what is called the pre Lapsarian state. And then you have the fallen state. And thirdly, you have the redeemed. God made all of us, God made Adam and Eve in his image, he made them good and perfect pre-lapsarian means before the fall <laughs> it's amazing what technology can do for us nowadays when you read through the Westminster Confession or the Belgian Confession or if you read through the Canons of Dort you find there that God made Adam and Eve perfect in righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. They had all that they needed to know. Adam could go in the garden and he could name every one of the animals and he functioned beautifully. He walked with God in perfect harmony. And then, of course, you have the fall. And all of a sudden you are moving here in this perfect situation and you literally have a fall. And then God says, for those who are mine, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to send my son and I'm going to have him die to cover all of your sins and to bring you back, to restore you. That's why I was saying in my definition of education that it is the recreation, the restoration, the renewal. We need to be brought back again, and we can only do that by the power of God. Apart from that power of God, we continue going into perdition and those whom God rejects, those whom he lets go, continue in their sin and get worse and worse and worse. That has to be and has historically been the primary theme of Scripture. If you say that the creation, fall, redemption is the primary theme of Scripture, then you also have to acknowledge that that must be the primary theme 
of education. We can't suddenly ignore that now when we start thinking about education. We were saying last night that education encompasses all of life. It begins already at birth and continues at least until we die. Now, that same kind of thing has to occur. We have to be transformed in the language of Paul. We have to be made over. And I'm going to suggest tomorrow and Thursday that we don't willingly, happily do that. God sometimes drags us kicking and screaming against our will back into a right relationship with Him. And we need to look at that as very, very essential to the learning process. So, we need to keep this in mind. Now, whenever you think about school, whenever you reflect back on your experiences in school, and all of you children, I assume, are some level in school, either homeschooling or in a formal school. Every teacher has some set of ideas or beliefs about the nature of students. It may not be well articulated. If I ask your teacher, what is your view of the child? What do you really think are the primary characteristics of those kids that sit in front of you every day? The teacher may scratch her head and say, I don't know, I never really thought about that. But there is a set of beliefs, a set of attitudes. I would suggest that there is a very prominent set of beliefs that controls American public schools today. I've seen it expressed this way. I used to, when I was still teaching at Trinity, I used to get into a lot of public schools on a regular basis and I got to sit in on a lot of classes and hear teachers talk and see what they put in their bulletin boards. And so one that I think is very prevalent, a teacher said, this is my motto, Knowledge available, bring your buckets. Bring your empty heads. There's a common assumption, very common assumption, that we come into life, we are born with blank slates, with empty heads. There's nothing here. When you are born, you don't know a thing. Some of you may recognize where that comes from. That's John Locke, the tabula rasa idea. Tabula rasa. It simply means a blank slate. You're born with no knowledge, no information, it's just like an empty bucket or just like an empty chalkboard. And the teacher's job is to fill up that slate. And as teachers now, we can decide what we want to fill it with. We can fill it up with all kinds of engineering data. We can fill it up with all kinds of literature, Greek literature or Indian literature or English literature we can simply fill up that mind and we can shape and mold the child after our own will. Now I challenge you to find that idea taught in the Bible. I don't think it's there. Notice what God did with Adam and Eve. He created them in his own image. He made them, he made you and I like himself. And he could simply say to Adam, go and control and govern and direct the garden. Name all the animals. Whatever you name them, 
was fine. And he did. He also says there to us in Romans 2, verse 15, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness. Do you ever think of that, children? When you were born, you had the law of God written on your heart. Yes? You've thought of that? That's good. And you have a conscience. You already have, in that tiny little head, in that tiny little brain, you have the law of God written there. And you have a conscience that tells you when you do something wrong. You know when you do something wrong. When you deliberately disobey dad and mom, you feel guilty. And you can't hide the fact that you know that's wrong. That's a marvelous kind of thing. God says, I didn't make you as a blank slate. I created you with knowledge. I created you with a sense of right and wrong. But now, there was that fall. And there's often a question, what did that fall do? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, and all of us become sinners by virtue of being their descendants, what did that do? Was that knowledge eradicated? Was it all wiped off? Or was it simply destroyed? Or was it fragmented and messed up so that we have need of clarification? While you're thinking of that, let me give you an alternative to this tabula rasa. The opposite kind of position that used to control our schools in this country and it's called innate knowledge. Plato, the Greek philosopher who lived some 350, 400 years before Christ, argued that we have all knowledge inside us. We are born with all knowledge in our heads. And it totally changes the way you teach. It totally changes the way you go about the business of educating. All of those who followed after Plato and followed that idea said basically, when I look at you, when I look at my students, I see you as having all knowledge inside of your head. Now what is my job? My job is to educare. Nice Latin word. You've got to learn a little Latin. Good for you. Latin means to draw out. If you have all knowledge inside of you, if you already know everything, the job simply of a teacher is to draw that knowledge out. I have to be able somehow to get that knowledge out of your head. So what is the primary technique, what is the primary method of a good platonic teacher? Right, to ask questions. A good teacher, according to that platonic model, is to ask questions that can draw that knowledge out. Plato said, long time ago, that learning is nothing more than bringing to mind what is already there. It's reminiscing about your innate knowledge. And a good teacher will develop questions that can just pull that out of you, draw it out of you. Quite the opposite. 
of what today's teachers tend to believe. Today they say, here you come. You don't know a thing. It's my job to pour it in. And what is the primary method? David? No, not the outcome. Uh, the, the primary method of these teachers is to pour it in, to lecture. To stand there and say, I have all of this information I have to give you. You, I'll, I'll be very crass, you shut up and listen. I have all this stuff, I'm just going to pour it in. The Platonic teacher said, I don't want that at all. I want you to talk. I want you to interact. I want you to answer all my questions. Two very different kinds of approaches. But let me suggest that there are a number of other models. Yes, uh, Mrs. Knuckle. What I forget your first name. Faith? Okay, yes, Faith. Sometimes teachers will hold multiple ideas about children. And they will add to this notion now that you are a blank slate. They will add another idea to that and say, you are also autonomous. You are, and they are living in a democratic society which preaches that as its primary gospel. Nobody may ever tell anybody what to do because we're all equal and we're all autonomous. Therefore, I will give you my version of what I think is important, and I'll try to pour that in, but you may choose your own. If you don't like it, you know, if you want an alternative lifestyle, that's fine, because you are autonomous. See, what happens so often is that we get our ideas about the nature of children from our culture around us, and we listen to all the voices we are still, as a culture, listening to the basic ideas of John Dewey. Now, John Dewey has been dead for 40-some years. forget exactly when he died. But the Supreme Court of the United States, in almost all of its educational decisions, from the 1950s on into the 1980s, basically used the educational ideas of John Dewey as their primary focus for making decisions. What did John Dewey say about the nature of kids? John Dewey, who was the prominent educational philosopher, basically said that yes, they are a tabula rasa. Yes, they are completely autonomous. Nobody except me may tell them what to do. I will tell him because I am God, is what he would say. But John Dewey added another dimension to that. And he said, we are nothing more than products of our environment. There is no divine influence. The, don't talk about the Holy Spirit shaping. Don't talk about a conscience. Don't talk about the law of God. That's nonsense. We are simply the products of our environment. You are what you eat. You are what you hear. You are shaped and molded completely by your culture. And if we put you in a culture of high-ranking diplomats and politicians, we can make you to be president of the United States. If we put you in the inner-city ghetto, you will turn out to be an inner-city drug addict, bum, etc., etc. We're simply products of our culture. The Democratic Party, for the last number of years, has bought that idea. The way to change education of our country, the way to change the outcomes, is to pour money into the ghettos and to change the environment. 
And if you change the environment enough, you'll change kids. Say no. It doesn't work. There's all kinds of evidence that doesn't work. There are a number of other models, a number of other ideas about the nature of man that have affected our education. Let me just mention Karl Marx and communism. That is no longer the big threat that it was 10 years ago, but it's still real. Karl Marx said, essentially, that children and human beings are tool-using animals. We are animals. We are products of evolution. We have evolved up the rank so that we are capable of using tools. And what we have to do, primarily in our schools, is teach our children to use tools to be productive workers. So, what kind of education do you get? If you believe that, you get vocational schools. And you say, it isn't important to learn literature. It isn't important to learn theology, but you better learn how to weld so you can go out and get a job. You better learn how to type, or you better learn how to run a computer so you can go out and get a job. Because after all, we are economic creatures. And we must learn how to use the tools to earn a living so that we can produce money for the state. All of those kinds of ideas have affected our schools. And all of the teachers that we have in our schools have some kind of basic idea, some kind of basic notion. Now, what you and I, I hope, will recognize is that we have to go back to God's Word and say, God, help us to understand. How should we view the children that you entrust to our care? And I want to suggest a number of things. This is not going to be an exhaustive list. But I want to suggest again at the outset, you put there that we are created in the image of God. Every time you look at a child, no matter what they're doing at the time, you have to say, that child is an image bearer of God. That is one of God's children. God gives children to people. You and I can't decide that we're going to have a child and make it happen. God created us to be holy, to be righteous, to function in perfect relationship with him. But we've fallen. And because of the fall of Adam and Eve and all of our own sins, every one of us has to recognize, when we talk about kids, that kids and adults are sinners. If you ignore that or say it isn't true, if you deny original sin as Jean-Jacques Rousseau did and all of his disciples, and you say, no, 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 that's not true, you're going against God's word. Let me add just another dimension to that. You are not only created in his image, but you are created as organic wholes. God made Adam and Eve in such a way that their whole being functioned as one. Now, that's not accepted by a lot of people. It's not accepted in our secular culture. If I go back to Plato again, Plato said that there was a very strong dichotomy between the body and the soul. For Plato, the soul was eternal and the body was evil. And you had to get rid of, you had to fight against the body. The body was terrible. And we say, no, that's wrong. God made this body too. 
and God made it good. It's not evil. And I can't, when I sin, <clears throat> I can't say, oh, my body made me do it. That would be wrong. Or <clears throat> I can't say, my, my head made me do it. The only thing I can say is, I did it. You always function as a whole person wherever you go. You take your whole self to church when you go to church on Sunday. I remember watching our kids learn their arithmetic tables in church. They would sit there and with the songbook and they would go through and they would count all the pages. Here's 42, 43, 44, 40. What are you doing? I'm learning my arithmetic. But you're in church. And they would learn poetry in church. They'd read those beautiful psalms. They're all poetry. And they would learn how to rhyme words in church. We take our souls along with us when we go to school on Monday. You can't pretend as though you're only dealing with the head. I know teachers who function that way, who act as though the only concern they have is with the head knowledge of children. And they have no concern whatsoever for kids' salvation, for, for the children's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, you can't do that. You can't put that off and say, oh, that's the pastor's business. That's the pastor's concern. I have no concern at all for that. All of us, hopefully, work together. So, <clears throat> we're made in God's image. We're fallen creatures. We're organic wholes. And let me also say this, that when I look at anybody here, children or adults, I have to recognize that all of you are totally depraved. Does that sound good? You like that? You want to fight? Want to get mad? Is that awful? To say that you're totally depraved? You are totally depraved. I know it. No, I'm talking about you. <laughs> There's an awful lot of confusion about that. Some people think that that's a terrible doctrine. I don't think so. I think it's very biblical. It doesn't mean absolute depravity. I know teachers, I have had teachers work for me over the years, who treated children as though they were absolutely depraved. <laughs> said, oh no. And they referred to them as those little devils. So, whoops! I had one teacher I had to bring in the office about once a week and scold him. He would say, every time a student raised his hand or her hand, he'd say, put your paws down. So, Ooh, you come here. You come sit in my office for a while. i got to talk to you. They're not animals. They don't have paws. Well, those little devils! Whoops! They're not absolutely depraved. They do devilish things once in a while. Yes, they do. And they do need once in a while to get a spanking on their behind. I hope you get one once in a while, not too often. <laughs> to be totally depraved means that across the whole spectrum, across all of my personality, across my total being, I am imperfect. I am affected by sin. So that... I can't do things perfectly anymore. I can't reason straight. I can't sing into. Can I? I can't even drink properly. Those who saw me drink, try to drink out of one of those silly squirt bottles, know that I, I can't, I can't put a church bulletin together for one week. That's perfect. <laughs> Every bulletin that comes out has an imperfection in it. 
I didn't intend it that way. I'd go over it and look over it, and sure enough, somebody will come back and error norm. Yeah, total depravity, proven once again. That's the way we are. We, we're not perfect. And if you try to be perfect in everything, you'll get frustrated. Terribly. Some of the most frustrated people I know of are perfectionists who are trying to eradicate total depravity in one fell swoop. Won't happen until you get to heaven. Now, what I'm saying is that all of the views we have about children are going to be the basis or the building block on which we're going to develop. I have to take that whole comprehensive set of ideas about the nature of kids and now say, okay, given what they are, looking at them and trying to understand what is, now I can begin to think what they ought to be. Now I can begin to move beyond that. Tomorrow morning, we're going to focus on what should we become. What should we become? And what I'm saying is the existing set of conditions that we have right now are not such that we ought to be content and say, isn't that wonderful? Let's just do everything possible to preserve them exactly as they come out of the womb. Nobody <laughs> holds to that. At least I hope nobody does. What we're saying is we have to understand what children are like and then from that we can begin to talk about what does God want them to become? What does it mean that God has sent his son to redeem them? To buy them back? And when Paul talks about transforming our lives, what does he mean to renew and to make over? What are the implications of that? Let me very briefly address a couple of the other questions I have on the sheet. And I won't get into a lengthy explanation or justification of these. But that third set of questions, are people essentially the same today as they were 100, 1,000 or 4,000 years ago? Yes. I don't believe for one minute that we are significantly different than people were during the time of Jesus or during the time of David and Solomon or during the time of Abraham, Isaac, or during the time of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or during the time of Cain and Abel. There is, in our culture though, a very prominent idea that would reject that. The contemporary educator who believes in evolution believes that we are progressing and progressing and progressing. We are getting smarter and smarter and better and better the longer we live. And I say, you want conclusive proof that isn't true? Look at Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Look at Dennis Rodman. As bad as I want to be. People today still love to sin. It's the only explanation why he is so tremendously popular. Because people by nature love to sin and they can do it vicariously through Dennis Rodman without getting hurt. Without getting AIDS, without getting thrown in jail, without all the consequences. They can let Dennis do all the sinning for them and they can simply cheer him on. We are 
fallen creatures who by nature hate God, who hate his law. And by the grace of God, he reaches down into our lives and says, I'm going to change you. You're mine. I don't care if you kick and scream. I have irresistible power in the Holy Spirit. And he will do what he wants. He can take us and change us and make us according to his will. Let me just also address the other questions. Are all people essentially the same? Do Chinese, Afro-American, wasps? You know what wasps are? Yeah. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Oh, segregated Protestants. <laughs> Put a double S in there. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Uh, they're in a special category by themselves. Uh, Hispanic, handicapped children all learn the same way? I would say yes. Our culture doesn't say that. Most educators today would say, oh, no, no, no. Handicapped children learn totally different. You have to have totally different methodology, totally different techniques because they learn in a different way. And inner city kids learn different than white wasps. I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. I think that all of us are essentially the same. And that we could, we can develop one learning, teaching, theory that will work and will prove true for all kids everywhere. I think even Chinese kids who learn that funny language with all those funny little symbols that don't make a bit of sense to me, they learn exactly the same way that you and I do. Sure they do. We are all made in the image of God. Let me stop there. Uh, our time is up. It's 8.15. I'll, I'll give you a minute if you have a question. Yes, Mr. Uh, Heresy. Uh, excuse me. Pharisee, Pharisee. <laughs> he told me that yesterday. He said, if you forget my name, just think of Heresy. And if you can't think of that, think of Pharisee. Mr. Garrisy. Uh, you said that the time of the Ross and that the... Uh, leads to a lecture, basically a lecture type of teaching, and of tabula rasa philosophy, and then the innate one leads to the Socratic question and answering, you did not say, I don't think anyway, what the Christian philosophy leads to as far as the teaching of philosophy. True. I didn't. The, the question was, uh, if the tabula rasa view leads primarily to a lecture method, and if the platonic method leads primarily to the to the Socratic dialogue, the question-answer method, then what does the Christian approach and Christian perspective lead to? How long you want <laughs> to... The, the answer is going to be determined in part by the learning theory that we develop from this. I am going to argue that there is no one inherent methodology that is required in all cases. I have argued for years that it is foolish to put all of your eggs, for example, in the modern math basket or in the drill and repetition basket. It depends on what you are trying to accomplish. What I'm going to argue is that methodological concerns do not come into the discussion. I don't even want to talk about them yet. I don't want to answer that question yet. Until we decide what it is that children have to learn. That will determine for me the method that I'm going to use. There are times when the lecture method is very appropriate to the objective that I'm trying to achieve. There are times when it's very appropriate to question. If I'm trying to determine, for example, whether or not children have learned what I'm trying to teach, then I need to ask questions. There are times when I will want to use other totally different methodologies. 
but they're going to be determined by the objectives or the goals I'm trying to reach. So I hope to get into some of that on Thursday. Sufficient? For, no? For, keep going. Okay. You said you're on all people everywhere are essentially the same as Chinese, Afro American, Lost, Hispanic, and handicapped children all in the same way. Like handicapped, do you also include deaf children and hence that phonetic teaching them to read by phonetic method would work? No. <laughs> the question is would I logically go from my statement that all children learn essentially the same way? Would I therefore conclude that deaf children should learn by the phonetic method? No. <clears throat> Don't make that leap. The essential is the key word. Essentially means that at the essence of the learning theory, they are going to learn in the same fashion. And I've worked with deaf students enough to believe that they learn essentially the same way. They can learn to read, but because they can't hear anything, they will have to get the stimuli, the message, through a different sense. So they will have to either use a tactile sense and work that way, or they will, may have to use the visual sense and watch people's lips and do lip reading, things of that sort, but they can't hear. So now I have to change the methodology because they have a handicap which necessitates a change in technique. They still are going to learn essentially the same way. And that won't come clear until I talk about learning and try to outline for you my views on learning which will come either tomorrow, late tomorrow, or I'm not sure where. It might be on Thursday. So hang on to that, and I'll come back to it. And if I can't answer it, I'll escape and run out of town. Uh, Larry, and then through the window here. Yes, Larry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Larry is commenting about the fact that this idea of children becoming smarter and smarter and smarter, that view doesn't come so much from Charles Darwin or from, say, Aristotle, where a lot of it originates, but it comes more out of Her uh, Herbert Spencer? No. Yeah, Herbert Spencer. His social Darwinism. He takes Darwin's ideas and he puts it into a social theory and now he has this idea of man collectively becoming better and better and better so that today kids are much smarter than their parents so you don't have to listen to your parents did you know that? <laughs> don't you believe that for a minute when you get to be about 21 or 22 you will realize how smart your parents are Sometimes it takes you about that long. But that's a, that's a social Darwinian, Spencerian idea. Good point, Larry. Thanks. And a question through here, through the window. Yes. Um, when you were talking about the body and the soul being complete and one, it was under the context of how things that God had made were good. And maybe taking things out of context, but when, they were when it talks in the New Testament about it, your eyes said you pluck it out I and maybe I've been secularized, but what basis in the Bible do you use to back that up to say the body and soul are one complete, and that you know then when we die our souls don't go to heaven? Or because that verse that talks about if there's something that offends you, it may be talking about behavior patterns. I'm not that sure. But that's what came to mind. To say hey, maybe maybe we aren't that united, but. Obviously, you believe it, and there's a reason why. And you probably have verses to back it up. That's kind of the question. Okay. 
the question is, what do you do if you believe in the organic wholeness of man? Believe that we function and were created as one total creature. What do we do with the passage where Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hands offends you, cut it off. I'll, I have never to this day in my short ministry wrestled with those passages and tried to preach on them. So I don't have a good, clear exposition of those texts. Uh, someday I hope to do that. What I am arguing though, and I, I don't deny that there is a separation of the soul from the body at the time of death. That the body goes back to dust and goes into the grave and is going to remain there until the resurrection. And then it's going to be reunited. And now you have questions about eschatology, about soul, where is that kept, soul sleep. Let's not get into that. Uh, I'll pass it off to Mr. Poundstone. <laughs> what I'm saying is that I, and I guess I'm partially reacting to forces in our culture. Our culture is so secularized in so many ways that we say the school has no concern whatsoever for the soul. The, soul, the school has no concern for religious growth and development. That's totally irrelevant. And I'm saying you can't do that. God made us one and we will, because of death, we will have a separation of body and soul. But at the judgment day, we will be reunited and we will, we say, we believe in the resurrection of the body and 1 Corinthians 15 says it will be a glorified body. So... Okay, you're satisfied t temporarily with that? Good. <laughs> Watch out, tomorrow may be another question. There was one in the back yet, and then there's another one from Mr. Yes. Yes, way in the back. Yes. You, okay, the questioner is asking, uh, if you look at South Central L.A., which is, I, I assume, uh, an area that's inner city, and then you compare that with uh, Beverly Hills, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, that may be stretching Beverly Hills. <laughs> but... Jewish. Yeah, I kind of. I was thinking that's probably Jewish up there. But okay, what is the difference in the degree of sin? And I would say, and I would not want to call it a degree of sin. I don't think that the one is worse than the other. I think they both are seriously sinning. They sin in different ways and in different forms. But the pride of a wasp that says, look what I've accomplished, is just as heinous in God's sight as somebody who lives in the inner city and goes around and torches buildings. I don't see that as a matter of degree. I see that as a different manifestation of sin. So I wouldn't want to put degrees on it. Now, I am, what I'm addressing is uh, the concern that I have as a citizen of this country. I see it in the state of Illinois. I suspect it's true here in California. I know it has been true with the federal government during the Democratic administrations. The Democratic administrations continually say that we must solve our problems by pouring more money into the ghetto. That is how you're going to solve the problems. If you just pour in enough money, you can change the character of the environment, you will solve the problems. And I say, no, 
the sin does not come from living in a dilapidated building. The sin comes from the heart of man. And unless you deal with the heart issues, unless you start teaching morality and truth and justice and righteousness and beauty and holiness, you're not going to make a dent on it. Now, sad to say, the Republican Party, for the most part, doesn't have a good alternative. There are people in the Republican Party who say, we must get at the heart of the issue. We must start teaching and we must support and promote Christian schools that teach Christian values and virtues. And that's what I would encourage and promote. Then I think you can begin to make a difference if you address the heart of man and his sin. Does that help? My answer to the degrees... Okay, good, thank you. One more question here. If I may, just sort of as a follow-up to that, I don't think you're saying, certainly, that the environment has uh, nothing to do no. with the manifestation of the way, I mean, if that's the way it's raised as, as proper behavior, that may in fact be what he does. I mean, the Bible certainly tells us how to train our children so that they don't do, I mean, so that they do do the proper things. So... You weren't saying that. I mean, I used to be a police officer, and I would see people, and little kids, in certain environments, and even as a reformed, you know, OPC uh, knowledgeable person, I would look at these little kids sometimes and say, well, at least it's job security. Because, hey, you know, unless God intervened <laughs> in that little kid's life, he was going to be doing precisely what his father was, his father before him. Yeah, I, good point. Thanks for helping me out. Anytime in the next couple of days you can help me out, you know, I'd appreciate it. But I would readily admit, as you are saying, that environment is an important factor. If you put a child in an environment where he is swapped all day long with talk shows on TV, and he eats garbage all day long, He's going to start living that way. And keep in mind also that we learn so much by imitation. We simply respond to the influences around us. And one of the most powerful influences around children is dad and mom. And uh, so often that child is a reflection of the father or a reflection of the mother, or a combination of the two, because the environment is powerful. But it's not the core, it's not the heart of the matter. That's in here. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed being with you. <laughs>